You're listening to Security Squad, Apple iPhone and Google Security for July 30th, 2007. One of the key things to remember here is that this thing is wildly popular right now. You know, within a few months, there's going to be tens of millions of these millions of these devices online, and that's a huge target of opportunity. How, how do they make money off of them? That, that's it, what I don't understand. I don't understand how, in any way, this makes sense as either well, they're a making, business model or as an, a practical way to release well, vulnerability this is, information. This is what this is what people express concern about Google is deadly serious about security and I think clearly these are things that they've been working on for quite some time. I hear what you're saying Bill but I think I'm going to take the, the skeptical point of view on these things just because you know history has shown that you know saying you're serious about security and being serious about security are, are two vastly different things. Welcome to Security Squad. I'm Rob Westervelt, and today, SearchSecurity.com's executive editor, Dennis Fisher, senior news writer, Bill Brenner, and site editor, Eric Perizzo, will talk about some security issues of late. First up is Apple iPhone security. Then, we'll discuss Google's continued march into the security market. And finally, we'll explore the flaw disclosure issues highlighted by the new vulnerability auction site, Wabi Sabi Lobby. Okay, first up is Apple iPhone security. A group of security researchers have found a couple of simple ways of taking complete control of the Apple iPhone. And these results are the, the first real success that security researchers have had trying to find ways to exploit the new device. And they do it through the Safari browser. It should be noted that the, the following conversation was recorded um, shortly before the announcement of this Safari browser flaw that would, and if exploited by an attacker, uh, could allow them to complete access to an iPhone. Now, Dennis, I know you wrote a story or a quick brief about um, some researchers at Arata Security. They they said that the iPhone is actually more secure than than other smart smartphones. Yeah, I, it's an interesting theory. Um, I'm not positive whether uh, I buy into it completely, but, you know, essentially they're saying that because um, because the Apple, because attackers understand um, Windows so well and the, the Windows-based smartphones so well, they know how to attack those phones uh, pretty easily. They run, they run essentially scaled-down versions of Windows and Outlook and, you know, very familiar apps to these guys that they know how to attack uh, fairly well. And in, in some cases, the exploits that, they, that you would use on, on PCs work on these smartphones as well. But that's not the case with the iPhone. And, and the iPhone also, right now, doesn't have an interface for anybody to write applications for it, which makes it, you know, a little less or a lot less accessible. Um, and there's also not really a, a, a user interface, per se. There's no way for you to to get into the guts to the, of the thing, really, uh, in, a, in a practical way. Some people have found ways around that, but it's not, it's not really practical. So I think the, the real security concerns around it right now have to do with sort of the typical um, enterprise concerns about being able to store data on the thing, uh, store sensitive data on the, on the device, and then losing it. Um, it's, its ability to connect to Wi-Fi hotspots uh, on demand, which can be a problem depending on where you are and, and whether there's malicious hotspots around. Of course, you can always turn it off. You can. I think that functionality is <laughs> There is an off button, yeah. Um, but I, I think people's sort of 
assume that there were going to be um, vulnerabilities with it just because it's it's a complex device and, and there's a lot of opportunities for, for mistakes there. But right now it looks like it's in, in fairly good shape, but that could, uh, that could change as people get more into it. But, Bill, is the broad use of the iPhone making Mac OS X more of a target now? I think you wrote recently about a... Uh, unidentified researcher that said he had a worm that could affect Mac OS X. Yeah, though, I, I don't think it really, the iPhone's appearance really changes the landscape of just how, you know, how much easier it is to crack into Mac OS X. The important thing to keep in mind with the iPhone, as far as some of the potential threats against it, is that you're not talking about new threats. If you're using an iPhone, it's the same risk that's been out there for the last two or three years, whether you use a laptop, whether you use, uh, you know, whether you're using a laptop at Starbucks or in the airport or, or any other mobile computing device that connects to the internet. And, uh, you know, the lesson's always the same, too. It's, you know, you have to take care in the kind of websites you're visiting um, when you're using these hotspots. Um, you know, if you're going on CD sites, you're going to be at risk. And, you know, the iPhone doesn't, I don't think, add a new dimension to that threat. It's just one more mobile device that if you use it foolishly, you can get hurt. I'm going to disagree with you, Bill, to some extent. I know that's a huge that's shock. That's a shock. But I think you have to look at this from uh, a broad perspective. Why is or why has Windows been so much more vulnerable than say Linux over time. It's because there are so many more people using Windows and because Windows, you know, be it because of the, the broad adoption or because of Microsoft, has become a target over time. The iPhone seems like it's the first Apple device that's really got a huge target painted on it. Um, from the Mac OS perspective, yeah, it's been out there for a long time, but they're really, it, it's not a, you know, it's not as nearly as widely used as, as Windows is. So there hasn't necessarily been that incentive for malicious hackers to, to try to deconstruct the thing and, 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 you know, really find, you know, tons and tons of dangerous exploits. Same with the, with the iPod. I mean, f largely it's been a standalone device up until now. You know, even if there was a way to, to hack into it, what good would it do? You couldn't really get anywhere from there. Now that you've got the iPhone which, you know, in addition to, you know, being uh, attached to, you know, connectivity via AT&T's wireless network, you know, a as Dennis has, has pointed out and, and, you know, said is, is a, a widely underestimated issue, it automatically connects to Wi-Fi, uh, you know, available Wi-Fi hotspots. So when you factor those things in, plus there are already third parties who are starting to uh, develop, you know, applications for it, to enable enterprise email and other data to get onto the device more easily, I think it's just going to be a huge, huge security prob problem down the road for individuals and enterprises alike. Well, and I don't disagree with you there. I'm just saying, you know, we can, on the one hand, we can talk about how many more people are using mobile devices and, and from there, how much more motivation attackers have to cook up mobile attacks but in the end the you know it's it's still in how you use it you know what kind of sites you're visiting what kind of information you're exchanging and i think when, as we're going forward and we see 
what the bad guys tried to do with the iPhone. Uh, a lot of the advice as far as how to protect yourself when you're using it is going to be the same as a lot of the advice that's been out there for the last couple of years. And, you know, that's the point that I was... Well, that being said, though, I think your overall security posture is largely affected by, you know, the number of uh, crackers out there who are trying to get into these devices. It's one of the things, though, that Apple said that it's done to avoid what you were saying is is just limited development on the iPhone to the Safari browser. Well, supposedly. I mean, that's the that's the that's the understanding we have today. But you know, is that you know, is someone going to find a way around that a month from now, two months from now? I would say probably. Yeah, and I think you made a good point, Eric. The the one of the key things to remember here is that this thing is wildly popular right now. You know, within a few months, there's going to be tens of millions of these uh, millions of these devices online, and that's a huge target of opportunity. I mean, there's a ton of researchers working on it right now to, to become that first guy who gets, you know, his name associated with uh, finding a vulnerability on the iPhone. I mean, we've seen guys who have said, okay, this vulnerability I found on Safari works on the iPhone too, but, you know, so what? It doesn't really get you anything. Um, but if you can find some iPhone-specific vulnerability, you're going to be the king of the world for a day, you know, and that's that's what a lot of these guys are after. Doesn't, so. it, doesn't it say something, though, that, you know, the Safari browser, which was out and, and it only took hours before researchers discovered a flaw on the Safari browser, the iPhone's been out for a month now, and we haven't seen anything. Uh, well, somebody did, uh, actually Dave Maynard did, say that the vulnerability that he had found in, in uh, Safari for Windows does work on, on the iPhone as well, but it's, it's, it, it's just a function of when the iPhone came out compared to when Dave found that. You know, I think um, you know, in the next version that will be patched. It's not iPhone-specific, but I think there will I, – I, I've got to believe there's, there's problems with it, and they'll be found at some point, and you know, the first guy that does that is going to be you – know, Next year's Black Hat keynote is already reserved. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably so. Okay, next up is Google's acquisition of Postini. And Google agreed to acquire Postini, which is a security and compliance vendor. They're, they're going to acquire them for $625 million in cash. And they promised to use the company's technology to harden defenses around its popular line of hosted applications. Dennis, talk a little bit about what analysts and security pros are saying about it. And, you know, we saw Green green Border Technologies acquired back in May, and no one thought Google was going to take, take it a step further. And they didn't think it was going to really make a major mark on the security market. Um, will, will Google have a bigger effect on the security market as a result of this next acquisition, this Postini? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's any question that Google has uh, made it clear that they're very serious about security now. Um, they've clearly put their put their mark, put a, a stake in the ground in security. They've uh, they've got all kinds of web application these days that are enterprise ready, and they've got plans to move into the enterprise. Right now, they're mainly concerned with the consumer market. And the enterprise hasn't really gotten on board with uh, what Google is doing yet. But I think that's going to change once they see the seriousness of Google's uh, play in the security market. 
um, securing the Gmail application with, uh, with Postini is, is a good start there, and the green border technology is very innovative. It doesn't really have uh, a close peer in the market, uh, at least right now. And uh, I think Google is, has made it clear that they're there to stay, and there's probably going to be some more acquisitions down the line, I would imagine. Dennis, I guess what I'm curious about is I wonder just to what extent Google is really serious and committed to integrating security into its offerings because if you're Google, um, isn't there a risk in, in disrupting that profit train, so to speak? Well, I guess there is, and I think we saw this with Microsoft, you know, say 10 years ago where they sacrifice security for the sake of features and functionality and time to market. But I think that Google has learned from that. I think they, they watched what Microsoft did. They have a lot of ex-Microsoft employees at Google, and they, I think, have learned from that example, and they understand. I mean, right now, most of their profits come from advertising, uh, so they're not making much, if any, money off the applications themselves. So. They don't need to worry too much about that right now. You know, all they have to worry about is developing the best applications they can. And these days, especially with web-based applications, that means building security into the application itself. The way I'm thinking about it, though, I don't know if Postini helps Google as much as Google helps Postini. I mean, from a corporate perspective, it really takes a top-to-bottom commitment to integrate security into everything you're doing. I think we've seen with Microsoft that, you know, it's going to be going on five years of, you know, trustworthy computing plus before long and only in, re, you know, the last year or 18 months does it really seem like Microsoft is, is really clued into what security is all about. So I just see Google on what the on the first steps of what's going to be a long road. But from the Postini perspective, it's great for them because obviously if you're owned by a company like Google, there's certainly no question that you're going to be around for a long time. So if there's anybody out there who you know had Postini on their radar at some point, you've got to go back to them and say, boy, this is suddenly looking like a, a much more solid option. Sure. I think um, the thing to remember about Google is they're a pretty secretive company. They, don't, they do a lot of things behind the scenes that we don't necessarily have a good handle on. I mean, up until three or four months ago, nobody even knew that Google had an anti-malware team. Now, you know, they're they're out in public with a blog, and they're being somewhat more uh, more public with some of the stuff they're doing. Like they they had a blog entry the other day about this uh, this cross-site scripting automated fuzzing tool that they built, which is a pretty slick thing. Um, so I think we need to to sort of give them the benefit of the doubt and. Uh, and wait and see what other moves they have up their sleeve before we before we you know sort of pass judgment on whether they're they're committed or not. That fuzzing tool brings up a good point because you have to wonder how many other tools and and offerings and strategies do they have like that under the covers that really are going to start enhancing the security of their offerings. I mean, I think it is a good move by them to start, you know, shedding some light, some public light on some of these offerings so that it can increase the public perception of Google security. Right. I, I would imagine they probably have others. I mean, we nobody knew about Google Maps until, you know, they just brought it out of the lab one day and said, hey, look what we've been doing for the last year. You know, so I think there's probably a few more of those things hidden back in the closet there that, that we might see in the coming months. From an analyst perspective, the analyst told me that 
Pustini was sort of a natural progression for Google anyways, and we're not really surprised by the acquisition. Since Google was already OEMing Pustini software with uh, Google Google Apps for their enterprise customers, so it was just a natural move, anyways, and it wasn't really that big of a of an issue. Yeah, and you know, I've, a lot of people that a lot of users that I've talked to in the last couple of weeks um, are pretty optimistic um, that Google is deadly serious about security, and I think you know Dennis mentioned how overnight they came out with all of a sudden having this this security team and then here comes the blog and here comes the fuzzing tool. Um, clearly these are things that they've been working on for quite some time. And uh, so I, I hear what you're saying, Bill, but I think I'm going to take the, the skeptical point of view on these things just because... Because I mean, you think can. I, well, <laughs> because it's fun to be skeptical, uh, you know, against what you're saying. But, right. I mean, I think it's also... Uh, you know, history has shown that, you know, saying you're serious about security and being serious about security are, are two vastly different things. So, I mean, again, I think, as Dennis said, you have to give Google the benefit of the doubt. They're, they're getting off to a pretty good start here, considering that, you know, they're still pretty young in their history. But, you know, it largely the book is yet to be written. That's true. But I think the key here is that when Microsoft started Trustworthy Computing, the first thing they did was come out and talk about it publicly. And then they went back and did a bunch of stuff. Google is taking the reverse approach in doing some of these things first and not really talking all that much about it and getting some results ahead of sort of the hype. Yeah, at the same time, Google sort of has the luxury of being able to do that because it's not like they're in the midst of a security crisis like Microsoft was at the time. They had to make a statement just because they were starting to lose business. At the at this point in time, Google's only starting to get its enterprise, you know, business up and running, so now is the time to be proactive. You know, they're, they're doing it now, and they're seeming like they're, they're proactive versus doing it, you know. Or they could have waited, you know. They could have done this acquisition a year or two from now right. when a problem, you know, may have, you know, when a problem comes up. Right. All right, and finally, a Swiss organization, and they're called Wabi Sabi Lobby, has started up a marketplace for zero-day flaws that will work much like the online auction site eBay, and we all know eBay. Um, at least one analyst said the move is almost certain to fuel a new debate over how flaws should be disclosed. Bill, why don't you describe, uh, this was your story, so why don't you describe it a little bit, and uh, we'll go into this uh, flaw disclosure briefly. Uh, Dennis, I know you'll have more to say about it. Sure. Well, um, it's gotten a lot of attention because of the eBay-like way in which they are proposing to do business, which is, you know, give us some vulnerability information and we'll throw it out there and people can buy it for the right price. Um, a lot of the IT people that I talk to absolutely hate this. They look at it as just another example of um, a company who comes out and says that their goal is to make more vulnerability um, information available to help people protect themselves, but that in reality it's nothing but another scheme to make money and and to, you know, have a Wild West kind of... Well, how, how do they make money off of it? That, that's it what I don't understand. I don't understand how in any way this makes sense as either well, they're a making business model or as an, a practical way to release well, vulnerability this is, information. This is, what, this is what people express concern about. 
you know, who is buying this stuff? Are you talking about black marketeers who may have a lot of money to give for, for something that they can turn into a good attack? Um, you know, the IT, IT folks tend to be of the mind that, that you know, they, they don't want all the details on something out there until the vendor has come up with a fix for it. And, and these are the folks that I talk to. I'm not saying this is every IT professional everywhere, but that um, you know they feel that this just makes their job harder because it's more information that can fall into the wrong hands. Bill, you spoke to some people though that that said that it didn't even this site didn't even warrant news coverage because they thought that it really wasn't going to make any any real mark on the way flaws are disclosed or. Right. Most of the people who I talked to for that story were against this whole thing and they hate it. But then there were a couple who feel like it's not going to make much of a difference one way or another. It's just another um, vehicle that looks like 10 other vehicles for distributing flaw information that's been out there for and, a while. And Dennis, you, you talked a little bit, of, or you wrote a little bit about um, how this really brings up the, the broader issue of flaw disclosure and ethical flaw disclosure. Yeah, it does. I mean, that, that's an age-old debate in the security industry. Uh, this is a little bit of a, a novel twist on it, but, um, you know, I can tell you that these kind of auctions have been going on sort of as private auctions for decades. I mean, researchers who have found vulnerabilities in uh, software applications and network systems have sold that information to government agencies, um, you know, attackers, whoever they could find to pay the highest highest price for years. It's it's not a new model. The only you know the novel thing that these guys are trying to do is um, do it as in in the public in in the light of day and make it a sort of a legitimate auction. But the big problem that they're facing is that. I think they had three or four vulnerabilities for sale last week when they launched. I saw two of them uh, on a public website for free. You know, you could you could just go and find the exploit code f with no problem. Why are you going to pay 600 euros for uh, exploit code that you can have for free somewhere else? So the business model itself doesn't even make any sense. These people have almost no chance of making this as a legitimate business. And Dennis, it wasn't... Um in the case of one of these flaws that that was put out there for free, wasn't the uh, the person's ultimate goal to make Wabasabi Lobby, you know, look stupid? In that, you know, here's this thing that they're selling for free. Yeah, that's true. They they actually put that in the uh, exploit code that they released on the site. It said, you know, nice try. You're trying to sell this for six hundred dollars. Here it is for free. So I, you know, there's almost. Uh, I, th I think there's almost no chance that six months from now we'll even remember the name of these guys and what they were trying to do. Again, I just don't even understand how from day one you can put together a business plan that even conceives of this as being a, a viable model. I don't understand how you can go about making enough money to, to support this. I mean, how many, how many new vulnerabilities do they have to discover and then auction off to actually, you know, have a viable business. A lot, and the problem is that there's already a couple of well-established markets for this kind of information. You can go straight to the Zero Day Initiative or to iDefense, and they'll pay you well above what these vulnerabilities are being auctioned for. I mean, their minimum price in a lot of cases is somewhere around $1,000. 
um, for a, you know a good solid unpublished vulnerability um, that's exploitable. So uh, there's no reason to even mess around with this when you can go through you know somewhat legitimate channels uh, to make you know a guarantee check instead of putting it out there on on this site. And uh, you know I think. Eric, you're assuming that there was some planning involved here, and it doesn't, it doesn't really <laughs> seem like there was. Yeah, you're probably right about that, Dennis. But, again, the whole thing just, just makes no sense to me. But bottom line, if they were out to get some attention for themselves, they certainly did that. They did. But there are some security vendors that are, that are doing this successfully, right? Not necessarily auctioning them off, but... Yeah, they're, they're, as I mentioned, the Zero Day Initiative from Tipping Point and uh, iDefense both buy, uh, you know, unpublished vulnerability information from researchers and then they go through the responsible disclosure process and bring that to the attention of the vendors go through the whole patching process and all of that and then they release it once the patch is released um, which I mean that whole model is, has gotten a lot of criticism from researchers as well but at least in that case you can say um, there's some thought behind it they understand the whole disclosure process and there's some legitimacy to it whether you you know whether you go for the whole responsible disclosure thing or not, that's another whole uh, issue. That ends this edition of Security Squad. You can check out our previous podcasts and subscribe to the RSS feed by going to searchsecurity.com slash podcast. And as always, you can get the latest news and information at our news page at searchsecurity.com slash news. For Bill Brenner, Dennis Fisher, Eric Perizzo, I'm Rob Westervelt. Have a great day.